social media has transformed our lives. It has also transformed how wars are fought. P.W. Singer's new book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media, describes the far-reaching impact of social media on the tactics and strategies used by military, business, and everyday citizens. We've all read stories about Russian bots and Cambridge Analytica, but Like War covers many more cases that are surprising and mildly frightening. From the Gaza Strip to the streets of Chicago to Taylor Swift's Instagram feed, Like War describes just how pervasive the effect of social media has been on warfare. Like War also provides historical context. For software engineers, the repurposing of social media as a weapon is disconcerting. Many of us are working on products with a social networking component. Does this make us complicit in building weapons? We can find some reassurance in the fact that this has happened before. From the newspaper to the television, every new communication invention has been repurposed for war. In a war, a new piece of technology always presents a new vector to gain an advantage in a conflict. Because the stakes are so high in a war, there is a large incentive to find creative ways to use technology to undermine your adversaries and to help your allies. P.W. Singer has written about robotics, cybersecurity, and modern warfare for a decade. In a previous episode, P.W. Singer and I discussed subjects like Stuxnet, drones, and social media manipulation. In today's show, P.W. returns to talk about his book, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media. To find all 900 of our old episodes, you can check out the Software Engineering Daily app in the iOS or Android app stores. We have past episodes about digital warfare, national security, and other philosophical and pertinent topics. You can check out this app in the iOS or Android app stores. And whether or not you're a software engineer, we have lots of content about technology and business and culture and all kinds of subjects that might be interesting to you. In our app, you can become a paid subscriber. You can get ad-free episodes, but you don't have to pay. You can just interact with other members of the Software Engineering Daily community. You can find episodes that are particularly appealing to you. It's an app that's custom-built for the Software Engineering Daily listenership. I hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get on with it. P.W. Singer, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me on. Our last conversation was almost exactly a year ago, and in that episode we talked about some of the contents of your previous books. These were topics like cyber warfare, drones, Stuxnet, and some about social media manipulation. But your new book, Like War, focuses completely on the weaponization of social media. Why did you focus on this specific topic for an entire book? Gosh, it's a project that our team had been working on for almost five years. And essentially, we were struck by the way that social media was reshaping how we thought about everything from news to politics to war. 
But then in turn, how what was playing out in news, politics, and war was reshaping the internet for the rest of us. And what Like War is about is essentially that we've seen and, and kind of grown comfortable with the idea of hacking of networks, the, the cybersecurity side of things, but that we're now seeing something definitely as important and in some situations more important the hacking of people on social networks, uh, the idea of driving ideas viral through some mix of uh, our own clicks and likes, but also lies and the network's own algorithms. And it's affected everything from the outcome of elections to the outcome of what products you buy, what movies you go to, to as we explore in the book, it's also affected uh, everything from crime to physical battles, you know, actual wars and the like. And so we were really struck by it. It's also a world that uh, is filled with all sorts of fascinating characters. And maybe the last thing that really drove us, so, you know, it's this mix of it's important, it's fascinating, but that we also felt people weren't getting it. And by weren't getting it, what I'm talking about here is this is a space about networking, and yet we were really stovepiped in how we were approaching it. And when I say we, that's everything from the journalists that write on it, the people that work in these fields and the like. So, you know, for example, the folks that were looking at ISIS in the Middle East weren't familiar with what was going on in Russian influence operations in Ukraine. In turn, uh, the people that covered American elections and domestic politics weren't familiar with Russian influence operations to the people studying criminal behavior weren't familiar with what might be going on in Silicon Valley and how decisions made in boardrooms were shaping the outcomes of what happened in Chicago street gangs. And the other part of the disconnect was um, you had some people approaching this field in kind of a quantitative manner, you know, big data surveys of, you know, mapping out networks of activities. But then you had other people who were looking at history or psychology. And so they weren't bringing their you know quantitative and qualitative side together. And so we felt by drawing all this together, we could help unlock some of the secrets of what was going on. You did draw many different anecdotes together and paired that with your perspectives on those anecdotes. Most people are aware of some of these things, at least in the United States, people talk about what the social media systems have done to our electorate or to Myanmar or the Philippines. But your book touches on several other anecdotes that are more removed from at least the Western public eye. Can you give a few examples of the the lesser known ways or the lesser talked about ways that social media is being used to affect real world conflicts? Oh, gosh. Uh, it's almost like you know, you're asking for examples and, you know, I joke, it's like asking for um, which is your least favorite child. <laughs> um, I think, let me pull back on it, maybe a way of answering is one of the things that I've been struck by in terms of, you know, the conversations around the book and also just how we talk about social media right now is that we've gone from this period of euphoria and techno-optimism where, you know, social media not just could do no wrong, but it was going to fix all the world's ills. And if you think about the high point of that was the Arab Spring and the protests that social media played a key sparking and coordinating role, pro-democracy, pro-human rights, and, you know, and the companies 
lean in, uh, pun intended, into that and taking credit for all these things that are going on. And then now we're at the other end of the spectrum where it just feels so dismal and all the scary effects of this uh, that we're also seeing, you know, as you mentioned a couple, whether it's uh, how foreign governments were able to influence domestic politics in a manner that's, you know, the scale of it, I think, is much bigger than most people realize. Uh, For example, over 146 million Americans saw uh, Russian propaganda on their Facebook feeds, roughly half the population, most of them still not realizing that. But to the example of Myanmar, um, a genocide essentially coordinated and pushed online. So we've had this kind of back and forth. And I think one of the things, you know, this is my circuitous way of getting to your question, is that need to understand that there is always going to be both a good and a bad side to any kind of technology, be it the very first stone that was picked up to social media. And for me, it was the way we tried to show that twin side through characters that showed the duality of it. And the great one of the messages of the book is how social media has been empowering to unexpected players all around the world. And we have three little girls in three different locations that I think illustrate that you have uh, one of the stories is you know kind of a heartwarming story of a little girl in Pennsylvania who at the age of seven starts her own online newspaper because her small town in Pennsylvania can no longer support a regular newspaper in part because of the way that social media has changed the advertising game. So she starts her own newspaper. Originally, it's you know stories like the birth of her baby brother. Not many people are reading about it beyond the family. But then she starts to cover things that range from corruption in the city government to she reports the very first murder in the town in uh, multiple generations. And it's this you know crazy story, and and actually it's since been bought uh, to be turned into a Hollywood movie. The flip side of that is a young girl who was growing up in Palestinian territories, kind of less bucolic than Pennsylvania. She's grown up surrounded by violence. She's lost family members to violence. And she too starts her own online news service, but she describes it as her way of fighting back. She describes herself as not just a journalist, but an online warrior. And she seeks out battles to report. And she says, you know, my camera is my gun. And, you know, this shows to me, again, this twin side of what's playing out. You know, there's a rule that how social media has empowered new people, but that rule has both positive and negative stories that play out from that. As much as I love you turning the question on its head and giving the optimistic take, I'm going to push you back into the dystopic narrative that uh, permeates much of your book. So you describe several different tactics of like war actors. Uh, One of these is a method used in social media where thousands of human trolls are amplified by tens of thousands of bots, and it becomes increasingly hard to tell who is a bot and who is a human. Describe how problematic this tactic is. So the key issue here is that this space, the online space, was originally designed for science, then it was turned into fun, and then it became for profit. And the spaces, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, 
you name it. As a result, they are designed not for veracity, but for virality. They're designed to draw us in and make us use them more and more. And that has been turned on its head by actors who understand how that how the space works and attempt to weaponize it to achieve their own goals. And that example that you give, uh, for instance, of creating false personas, what we call sock puppet accounts, and then combining them with uh, bots, uh, algorithms that uh, act uh, as if they're real online. That combination can be incredibly powerful because it essentially manipulates the network's own algorithms to drive messages viral that otherwise would not go viral, which in turn creates beliefs that would otherwise not be so widespread, new truths, to it can ripple out beyond the social networks. What is trending online then shapes what other media cover. For example, 97% of journalists use social media to decide everything from what stories they cover to what angle to take on the stories to who to interview. So even if you're not on social media, you're listening to the radio, you're watching a a cable news uh, TV show, you're shaped by what's going on online. And of course, it's not um, much of it. If you have this uh, manipulation possible, it means it's not authentic. And Early groups realize this. You know, examples we cover in the book range from, of course, the the now infamous Russian disinformation activities, where this mix of sock puppet and bot accounts, you know, as I mentioned, was was widespread, highly influential. Again, not just on Facebook. Uh, you could see the same playing out on Instagram, YouTube, uh, Twitter, of course. One of the accounts we illustrate within the book is um, one called Tennessee GOP. It was claimed to be a Tennessee Republican who, you know, wanted to take their country back. Of course, now we know it was a Russian um, information warfare account. That one account, that single account was the seventh most read account on election day 2016. Not the seventh most read of the more than 3,000 um, Russian sock puppet accounts, the seventh most read overall. But those very same tactics were used by ISIS, uh, for instance, to drive its messages viral. And we illustrate how in the Battle of Mosul, ISIS had a much smaller physical invasion force. It had about uh, 2,500 soldiers that are invading against a defending force on the Iraqi army side of about 20,000. So, you know, a 1 to 10 disadvantage. But through similarly a mix of bots and sock puppets, ISIS drives its messaging viral. It makes itself appear as if it's winning, controls the narrative online, and then the Iraqi soldiers are reading it on their smartphones and they believe it. And then they run away. To We've seen this move into everything from celebrities and marketing campaigns for products. And again, the product might be a movie. There was a a wonderful recent story about how uh, Lady Gaga fans mimicked the Russian disinformation warfare campaign to go after rival movies that were coming out the same weekend as uh, her new movie. Kind of a fun, amusing story, but if you were the producers of those other movies, you didn't like it to, you know, again, there's a, there's a history to this. One of the examples in the book politically is the practice of what's known as astroturfing, where 
You have grassroots movements where people truly do organize to support something. And then astroturfing is where you create the false sense of a phenomena. So one of the ones that's mentioned in the book is Newt Gingrich. When he ran for president in uh, 2012, His this is reported, not just us saying this, over a million fake followers. So it creates a sense of there's this massive online following for his ideas. If you remember, one of the ones he promised was a a moon base by the year 2020. You know, that did not get the uh, support, but by creating this astroturf phenomenon, it makes them appear more popular than they truly are. So again, that's selling a political product, but the same thing can be done in the physical products that you buy. What's the role of traditional news organizations that have this reputation as being a bastion of trust, a place like the New York Times or perhaps Bloomberg, maybe Vox. What is their role in this new disruptive world of like war? Well, a couple of things. One is some percentage, some percentage of your listeners just heard those examples that you said and said, "No way! Those are partisan examples. They're fake news." <laughs> yeah. They got they yes. got angry by that. And one of the phenomena, part of that belief, is a result of how social media has reordered not just our worldviews. You know, one of the things we break down in the book is how we've kind of organized into. There's a, there's a phenomenon called homophily, love of self. And you basically, again, because of the way the networks are organized, you are more likely to click on, more likely to share stories that reinforce your worldview. And we tend to then cluster into different little information bubbles. But what's been fascinating then is how you can break down what media outlets are thriving or not within these now more partisan bubbles and what's been fascinating is on the left, there's still a, a plurality. Uh, if you map it out, there's sort of a, a of what people with left-leaning views are reading and what they're sharing online. There's a pretty strong mix. So you've got the New York Times, you've got the Huffington Post. It's kind of like a galaxy with lots of different little universes out there, if you kind of imagine it map. By contrast, on the right, you have the same kind of filter bubble. So both sides are being struck by this, but it has a very different clustering. Essentially, there's a smaller number of universes uh, where it's hubbed primarily around Breitbart and then by and Fox News, and they tend to kind of link into that. So two very two information bubbles, but very different information bubbles. So that. We've seen what I'm getting at is we've seen kind of the media universe affected by that. In turn, one of the the challenges is that some outlets have embraced that kind of new reality and run with it and have used it to drive towards more profits. Breitbart is a good illustration of that. I don't mean good in terms of I'm you know praising their content. I'm just saying they you know they they leaned in to the virality side of that. And some don't realize when they're being manipulated. So a good example of something that the the companies, particularly on the the media side, need to catch up to is the fact that over 60% of the articles that we share online, we don't read the contents of them. So we are sharing them and 
taking them in based solely on what the headline is. And we're sharing them for a lot of different reasons because we believe it or we believe it will influence the outcome of, again, an election or it's a way of signaling about who we are. But the point is, is that if you can get your lie into the headline, you win. So you see this something that, you know, it's amazing that that's still two years after, you know, the 2016 election, you see, uh, for example, AP and Reuters are really bad at this. They'll just quote someone who's making an obvious lie. The president is one of these and then not put any context on it. So it'll be the president saying something that is definitively not true. It's not an, an inarguable you know, thing, but yet it'll be Trump says X. Trump says, and, you know, we can think of all sorts of examples of that. Mexico has agreed to pay for the wall. No, they haven't. That's that's not a that's just simply not true. So, but they'll just have that quote, and that quote again, sixty percent of uh, the times it's being shared, that quote is getting out there. And so, it's one of these things. The companies have both been changed by the marketplace, but also some fail to realize how the marketplace uh, has changed. Now, my personal media consumption has changed a lot since this election and and trying to come to terms with the sense of unmooring from a shared reality. I feel like we have entered a world where it's almost like a choose-your-own-adventure for what your reality is. You can just choose what reality you want to live in, and you can find media sources and podcasts and audiobooks that reinforce that world. And if I can interrupt you, it's not just that you can find it. It's that the structure of the networks, the way they work, is it will be fed to you. So, you know, if you think about, for example, YouTube, which, again... You know, one of the things you need to particularly is the, the different generations media consumption. So, for example, if if you or I were doing a, a school report back in the day, we would have not gone to YouTube. We're being given a report on write a report on the Federal Reserve. Right. It, we would have gone to the encyclopedia or whatever back in the day. I'm dating myself. But the point is, if you are a you know 15 year old right now, one of the places you would turn to is YouTube and you would just put in Federal Reserve. And then besides whatever pops up initially, running along the right of it would be all these other suggestions. And you would then click on those. And then you would click on the other ones along that. And very soon, you would be down a conspiracy theory rabbit hole. You would be being pushed all these kind of crazy ideas that are not true, but just the way the network's own algorithms work, that would happen. And the same thing happens in, in kind of quite dangerously issues related to extremism, terrorism recruiting, or the like. And that's one of the things that the companies have been, I'll say it, wrestling with is that they design them in this way. And then now they're being kind of called out on that. And they kind of are mixed, you know, trying to do things about it. But also, it's at the core of how the whole system works. That's how they make money. And this illustrates a few points of why I think podcasts are gaining in popularity. One is that Podcasts are based on a pretty archaic, fragmented ecosystem of uh, sharing audio content. Your podcast player, I don't know if you're a podcast listener, but it's its a chronologically ordered, it's not a recommendation system, and so you just kind of see what is being published in order. And in addition to that, 
the format of the most popular podcasts is a very long conversation. It's a long-form conversation, oftentimes unedited, and it resembles what we might experience in, in a long-form real-world dialogue. And I think it does a good job of sometimes setting an example for how people can have real-world conversations where people can, can really dig into ideas and I think of it as a, a refuge from some of the online notions of, of conversation. Uh, have you taken any countermeasures in your personal life as you've as you've realized how damaging this this social media ushering of your mind through whatever marketing um, vortex Mark Zuckerberg wants to take you through? What ha- what have you done in your personal life, your social media habits or your conversational habits to accommodate the series of changes? So I want to hit though that that point that you're making about podcasts because it connects to one of the key lessons of of the book is that we wanted to in essence figure out what were the new rules of the game and. As we talked about earlier, you had this wild diversity of actors, you know, whether it's Trump or Taylor Swift or ISIS or the Wendy's hamburger chain. And even though they were wildly different, we kept seeing similar tactics. We kept seeing similar phenomena because they're all kind of playing in the same space. And one of the issues that the book wrestled with was, okay, when things go viral, why is that? What are the attributes that they have? And, you know, the attribute is not that it's true, but there are other attributes that they have that that work, so to speak, online. And we break them down. There's five different ones, but one of them is authenticity, planned authenticity. Now, you know, authenticity, this is something that we saw, whether it was Taylor Swift or ISIS's top recruiter. It's the idea that, again, it sounds like a contradiction. It's the battle to be real but being conscious of the fact that there is a battle to be real. So, for example, Taylor Swift does what's known as Tay Lurking. She came up with the name herself, where it really is her. She will uh, lurk around her fan sites. She'll see what they're talking about, and then she'll link in. She'll, for example, congratulate a fan who passed their driver's license. She'll console a fan who broke up with their boyfriend. And what she's doing is she's understanding that this is a space that allows simultaneous mass broadcast, but one-on-one connection. And so she's having a one-on-one engagement, but in full knowledge that it can be shared with the wider world. And it's very similar to what Junaid Hussein, who is this interesting guy who was interesting slash dastardly guy, who was ISIS's top recruiter. He was a failed rapper who later turns to extremism. But I find that to be one of the illustrations of a podcast and and why podcasting has taken off because there's an authenticity to it. It really is you. You and I are having a one-on-one conversation, but it's simultaneously something that can be broadcast with the world and shared with the world. And it's done in a manner that's um, kind of more organic than the very clearly sort of canned version of someone on a, a TV show or the like. Anyone can create their own podcast. So that hits one of the other elements of it. It's democratized. So, you know, that's that's an illustration of some of the rules that the book breaks down that, again, apply whether you are running a political campaign or running a marketing campaign for your small software company. And this gets to the direct answer to your question, which is you know, part of what I've changed and what I hope other people are able to change is the recognition that we're all players in this. 
if we are online, we are targets of these tactics. We are participants. We Our clicks determine whether they go viral or not, whether they get shared or not. And that's really important, not just in shaping the overall web trends, but whether our friends and family is exposed to them. The key for whether a news article is is shared is not whether it's true or not. It's whether a friend or family member shared it. And so it's kind of a, a what I'm getting at is that these tactics are happening, whether we are aware of them or not. It's just our awareness. So, you know, our, we're either ignorant players in these battles and we're taken advantage of and we're allowing our friends and family to be taken advantage of, or we understand the new rules of the game and we can react to them and, you know, tilt them back to our previous conversation, tilt them more to the good side rather than the bad side of the phenomena. There are engineers that are listening to this right now and they're wondering, okay, this is a nice conversation, but what does this have to do with software engineering? Why is this on Software Engineering Daily? But the reason you guys you're an important... create the network. You run the network. <laughs> That's you, right. You, so you are not just targets of all of this. You are, you know, participants in a way that's different. You know, one of the other issues that I found fascinating is, you know, kind of pull back on this. Some of the most powerful actors in war and politics today are basically tech geeks who originally weren't all that interested in war and politics, and yet they're shaping what goes on. You know, you think of Zuckerberg and and the wider network of people working in a company like Facebook and then its broader empire. You know, Zuckerberg gets into this because he writes really cool software that initially is just about rating whether his dorm roommates um, and their and his schoolmates are hot or not. That's the origin of FaceMash. It's just kind of good software. And he turns it into a business. And now Zuckerberg is making decisions about, you know, that shape everything from the outcome of elections to whether genocide happens or not. It's this incredible power. And so you see, you know, that plays out at all sorts of different companies, large and small. Software engineers are now powerful players in war politics news. And I think we're seeing kind of a a coming to grips with that kind of power and the implications of that and how it can be used for good or ill. We can no longer act like we're neutral, like we have nothing to do that, because even if you take that neutral position, that's taking a position. And I mean, some people have a much more cynical outlook on this, but I don't think Zuckerberg wants people to be dying in genocides. I think he has stumbled into a world of even more power than he imagined or he craved. And it's it's not just a, a power in the sense that he can direct history. It's more like a power in terms of he makes decisions and there's a magnitude to those decisions. And the engineers at these companies that he's – like the engineers at Facebook that he's directing, they've been working on solving some of the problems that you outline in the book – my sense is that the countermeasures to some of these uh, like war uh, negative outcomes have not been very successful. What's your sense of the success of countermeasures against some of these like war tactics? So 
a couple of things there. I think first, you're exactly right. You're hitting this transition that the companies and the individuals within them are going through, where I liken it to parents going through the stages of grief. So initially, there was denial of, you know, for example, Zuckerberg saying it's a quote, pretty crazy idea that disinformation could have played out on his network on scale and influenced people's actions. And, you know, the irony is he's saying that back in 2016, at the very same moment that the company is marketing itself to political campaigns as the best place to influence people's actions, in that case, their votes. So they've gone from that kind of denial. And similarly, you know, the, well, we don't want to be an arbiter of truth or whatever, this sort of, you know, kind of pullback. It's not our job. It's not our role. We don't want this to now they're kind of in the position. If you go from, from um, denial to bargaining, Facebook saying, Nothing was happening to you. Now, we've created a war room to deal with election interference. We're engaged in a, quote, arms race against Russian disinformation warriors. And But part of them extolling all those things that they're doing is also saying to politics, governments, their users, hey, don't worry, don't intervene. You know, this is what we're doing, so you don't have to force us to do more. And my own personal take is there's some things that they're doing, but there's still a long way for them to go. And I think we, you know, the more and more news comes out, the more and more we can appreciate that. You know, part of this is to recognize they're running what is simultaneously a communication space, a marketplace. That's what these with the internet and in particular social media has become, but it is also a battle space. It is a battle space where these what we call like wars, these battles to drive ideas viral through likes and lies play out every day. And it, by it being a battle space, there will always be a back and forth. So whatever measure they put into place now some adversary is going to react to them and try and move around them. And so, for example, at Facebook, we've seen them put into place measures against Russian disinformation campaigns that, you know, frankly, if they had been in place in 2016, we'd be in a very different world. And not just talking about, you know, US side to the level of activity in Brexit. One third of the online conversation related to Brexit back in 2016 was by inauthentic voices, was by false accounts. One third of it. But the point is, they put those measures in. It's not as easy in 20, you and I are talking in the very last weeks of 2018. The things, the tactics that were done in 2016, harder to pull off in 2018. But that doesn't mean that the Russians said, gosh, I guess we're done. We give up. No, they've just moved on to other new tactics. And so this is what the companies, again, are challenged by wrestling with is that hold it, I'm running a battle space where there will always be this back and forth. Whoa, that's not kind of the job that I set out to have. I set out to, you know, create cool tech and make money. I'm sorry, that's part of what's played out. In terms of the techniques that are actually being used by these companies to combat some of the problematic conflict behavior, the the typical technique that I hear is you combine human labeling with trained machine learning models and I've heard you suggest that AI is not going to be a silver bullet to solving this problem. Can you explain more specifically what your perspective is on the shortcomings of this strategy? It, it goes back to what we were talking about of recognizing sort of the battle space nature of this and also the twin nature of the good and the bad. 
So we are seeing a greater use of um, increasingly sophisticated algorithms, particularly, you know, it falls under the idea of AI, and they are being used for both good and bad purposes, even when creating false personas online. So this is mixes everything from what are known as uh, chatbots and then madcoms to deep fakes. So chatbots and madcoms, it's, for example, an account that can have a conversation with you, even though it's not a real person. Uh, they're getting better and better at it. To deep fakes is using AI to create a hyper-realistic imagery that becomes almost impossible for a human to tell whether it's real or fake. And uh, the good examples of these, you know, for example, the companies um, love them. They're being developed for marketing. Uh, it's a lot easier to, to sell you in this way to inter uh, help desks when you've got a problem. You interact first with a machine rather than a human to entertainment. People blending deep fakes in to make more interesting videos. I and mean, we've seen this of everything from someone did this to the, the Star Wars movie Solo to people have done it with porn movies. So those aspects is happening because people think it's going to save money for the company or make money or, or whatever. But then the flip side is, of course, it can be weaponized. It can be used for bad ends. It can be used to create, uh, to trick people into voting for things that they wouldn't otherwise. It can trick people into um, believing something that's not true, manipulating people. And so for the companies, you got this twin nature, but in, in turn, increasingly the only way to detect these kind of hyper-realistic fakery is equally through AI. And so you have this kind of wonderfully science fiction-like outcome where the future of marketing battles to actual online political battles will be two AI battling with us poor humans in the middle, which is basically the story of the Terminator movies, right? <laughs> uh, the two robots at the end battling with us poor humans in the middle. Do you see any alternative measures? I mean, there's things like maybe we could ma mandate a real identity system for the internet, or we could we could deplatform more people. Oh, there's lots of different things that the the companies and and the policy world and you and I can do about this. You know, we break them down in the book, but one example uh, related to this idea of kind of fakery has been pushed by Senator Mark Warner. And essentially he said, okay, you know, companies, if, if you are not going to rein this in for a variety of reasons, including because, you know, you see it in, is in your own incentives to allow it on the policy side, we can't force you to ban it all. But we can maybe say you have to label it. We'll require you to label it. So I, I jokingly call this the Blade Runner rule to make another science fiction parallel. The idea that we humans online should have the um, right to know whether we're interacting with a robot, with a bot or not. We may not be able to prevent there from being these kind of bots, but we should at least have the right to know it, that kind of labeling system. More broadly, you know, when we move out of this idea of fakery, you mentioned the idea of deplatforming. De this is one of the issues that has become, you have freedom of speech. You do not have the right to push disinformation in a manner that harms society as a whole, even more so to do it knowingly and repeatedly. And so the companies have to, again, wrestle with this, that there are actors on their networks who are trying to both manipulate 
their networks and target their users with harm. And one of the most interesting things is that now we have the ability to figure out who these players are. And one of the most fascinating is that when you map out the spread of three different kinds of ills, conspiracy theory, the second type, hate and extremism, and the third type, foreign government disinformation campaigns targeting democracies. One of the things that's fascinating is that you find a overlap between the key, we call them super spreaders of, uh, if you think about a public health parallel, when disease spreads, not everyone's equal. There's almost always a small number of people that are behind a large number of cases of the spread. It's the same thing in these pandemics of conspiracy theory, hate, and disinformation. But what's fascinating is that there's an overlap. So for instance, one of the key figures behind Pizzagate, this crazy, kooky, definitively false idea that there was a secret sex dungeon at a DC pizza restaurant. It goes viral though, and actually uh, this guy believes it and drives up from North Carolina with a gun and conducts a shooting in that pizza restaurant, all driven by this conspiracy theory. Well, one of the key guys behind the spread of it actually was flip over if you're looking at the Russian government disinformation campaign of all the people in the world that the Russians decided to echo chamber, to, to retweet out, to have their bots push out their messaging of all the people in the world. If I remember the data correctly, he was the third most and by several orders of magnitude compared to like the eighth, ninth in life. So basically the Russians in seeking to harm U.S democracy and British democracy and the like said, of all the people we want to amplify the most, it's this Pizzagate conspiracy theory. So the point being to your deplatforming example, if we can figure out how to deal with this relatively small number of knowing bad actors, we'll be able to, to knock out a lot of the bad thing. But of course, that's not a government issue. That's the company's own uh, decision making. And of course, but it also turns to us, we decide whether these very same actors thrive or not. This same actor is out there continuing to push all sorts of other cockamamie ideas and his history should follow him. Every time he pushes some other crazy idea, it should be, hey, you were the dude behind Pizzagate. You don't get to do this. You know, jokingly to make like a pop culture reference, it should be like you know, the North in Game of Thrones. You know, we should never forget. It should always be there. Yeah, I'm with you there. And I think this is all the more reason to, to encourage there to be more social networks such that when somebody gets quote unquote deplatformed, they at least do have some other place to go. Maybe they shouldn't be welcome on the public square of Twitter, but there's other social media platforms they can go to. There's other forms of monetization they can reach and they should go go to those places. Um, they have, again, you have a right to free speech. You do not have a right to use a privately owned network to violate its own created rules and to push false information designed to harm society. You can go stand on your little wooden box on a street corner but that does not mean you have a right to use these networks. And again, that's, the, that's not me making this up. That is the way the law has come down on it. What the companies, we've seen them go from saying, no, we, we don't have to make this decision. 
to now they are starting to wrestle with that. So you look at the example of someone like Alex Jones. Alex Jones behaved in the very same way three years ago that he behaved, you know, about five months ago. But effectively, the companies changed their minds because of people like you and I, the user base decided, you know what? This kind of activity is, we don't like it. We don't want it to be on our network. And if you continue to allow people to do things like, for example, push false messages where you think of, you know, it's not just like lizard men and, and stuff like that. He was knowingly and consciously spreading false information designed to cause harm to, for example, the parents of the kids who'd lost literally kindergartners killed in mass shootings. And he's pushing out information that he knows will cause them harm. So he's doing the, the companies basically change their mind. And as you know, they, they deplatform him. They say, you know what? Um, you were, we're no longer allowing you to do this. And it has a very real effect on his business model. That's one of the other things to remember about all of this. It's a business. Anytime there's the spread of a conspiracy theory or the like, there is someone who is profiting from it. And so if you understand that, then you're less likely to be taken in by the conspiracy theory and it also shapes what we can do about them. Okay, so the subject of China. In China, the government pays civilians to post positive things about the government on social media. And I spent some time in China recently. I went to a conference, and my firsthand experience was in contrast to some of the perception that I had gotten from the internet, which had you know had convinced me that that China was, I guess, more more closed-minded or, or had a, had at least a different, more restrained sense of what they wanted than than people from the United States. But in, in China, I really felt like there was there's a shopping mall on every corner. There's Starbucks and KFC everywhere. It felt like New York. And I got the sense that the Chinese want what we want. They want peace and consumerism and art and technology. But the public narrative is that we are fundamentally different than the Chinese. How different are we from the Chinese, and how does the social media-like war manifest in China? So what you're putting your finger on is how the internet itself is changing. We have this notion of this shared information space, you know, global and the like, and yet it's becoming broken down into, you might think of it as fundamentally different internet experiences based on where you are geographically. So if you are in the United States, there are certain social media platforms that are incredibly popular and they control the rules of the game. If you are in Europe, those very same social media platforms are popular, but the government has put into place different rules that shape what is allowed or not on them in a way that is not possible in the U.S. political system right now. If you are in Russia, there are other social media platforms that are popular, so VK instead of Facebook, and the government is using its power to control what is on them in means that would not happen in Western Europe or the United States. For example, VK, essentially the government forced the buyout. They, they threatened the, the young owner, sort of the Russian version of Mark Zuckerberg. They threatened him with various prosecutions, sort of chased him away from the country, and the company was sold to a Putin crony. Then you have, if you live in China, other 
companies that are popular, and as you know, a kind of a, an embrace, if you're particularly in the urban areas, use of social media and, and digital commerce combined together in a way that way more uh, you would describe as kind of futuristic than in the United States. It's like your Facebook and, and Amazon and Yelp, everything smashed together into one platform, all there together. But then you combine that with a government that is an authoritarian government and is using that mass scale of data to control the populace in a manner that would be unthinkable, not just in the United States, but unthinkable to even someone like George Orwell. Uh, so you have everything from web screening, where you may have mass internet use, but there are certain terms and ideas that simply can't be typed. It will not appear on the internet. You know, Try and find something about Tiananmen Square to, for a period of time, as we joke about in the book, you know, joke, but it's real, Winnie the Pooh was screened out because people were using it as a way to talk about the Chinese leader. He had a, he had a waddle like Winnie the Pooh. So the government responds by cleansing the web of Winnie the Pooh. To, as you know, you then also have the use of cheerleading, government-paid folks. Sometimes it's called the 50-cent army, who essentially they push certain party lines and drive that good news viral on scale. To you have the social credit system that's emerging, which basically it's a the idea ultimately when it's put into place is that people will get a single numeric score of their trustworthiness in the idea of in the mind of the government and this corporate um, makeup, where your single score will reflect all of the different activities that you do. So, for example, if you buy diapers online your score goes up. You're a good parent. If you play video games too long, your score goes down. You're screwing around too long because it's a network. It's not just your activities, but your friends and family's activities. So if your brother says things bad about the government, your score goes down too. And that score then shapes all sorts of, we might describe them as kind of real world activities. So you get rewards, free charges at coffee shops to you might get negative outcomes. If your score is not high enough, you aren't allowed on a plane flight. You don't get a bed on an overnight train to really creepily, it's being woven into things like job applications to online dating. So if your score in the ideas of the government is not high enough, you will not be matched with someone who is attractive. And so you can see this kind of you know fundamentally different internet experience as a means of government control. And you know again, the, the point is that we'll have all of these like wars out there, but we may see them play out differently in different geographies because of the politics of this. And oh, by the way, back to the discussion of software engineers, just like the original called the, the Great Firewall of China was originally designed by Western tech companies, the same thing, this scoring system is drawing from technology that software engineers located around the world, not just in China, helped create. So, you know, to kind of a great ending point for our conversation, you may not be interested in like war, but you are likely participating in it. P.W. Singer, thank you for coming back on the show, and I really enjoyed your book. I'm looking forward to whatever you come out with next. Thank you so much for having me online. Wow.